Hello everyone and welcome to this, the next episode in our mini-series, Getting to Better Together. This of course is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Before I go any further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gabi Gabi people, and to pay respect to their elders, past, present and emergent. This morning we're going to take a new direction, two new directions really. For the first time in this series, we have the voice of youth. Up until now, we've been really listening to people who are, how to put it, maybe beyond the middle point of their careers. Uh, Now we have someone who is on the verge, really, of beginning her career. Uh, Leonie Wihongi is um, a student in international studies and very close to graduation in that. And then uh, after that, she's going to move on and do a law degree. Her passion is international study, internationalization, and she has a whole lot to say about that. So that's the second direction. We have the voice of youth and we have the direction of internationalization. So let me welcome you, Creole. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be able to chat with you about a few different perspectives. It's sort of daunting, really, to to find a starting point to say, you're a young person. What's your view of the future? Are you optimistic about the future? Yeah, I, I would like to say that I am optimistic. I think Within my own studies, uh, it's easy to take a negative perspective on a lot of what's happening. And I think that's progressed through kind of what you hear through the media uh, and also just the opinions around you. So I think despite those different perspectives, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel if you're willing to focus on, on the positive. And yeah, that's something that I would like to see in my career down the track. Uh, but I am enjoying learning about it. Why international studies? What's the fascination about that? So for me, international studies stems back to when I was quite young. I had grown up, I think being in Australia, we're in a bit of a bubble. We're kind of separated from the rest of the world. And we don't really get to see what's happening. And in primary school, I remember attending my first language class. I was learning Japanese. And it was the first taste for me of what a world outside of what I've always known Um, actually looked like. I'd never considered that there were different cultures, uh, that people spoke a different language, that foods and customs varied to what I was so comfortable and used to seeing. And I think that instilled a deep fascination uh, in the unknown. And so for me, being able to travel, uh, to interact with people on campus, to interact with people outside, just in the community, uh, from different backgrounds and perspectives has just formed this passion for for learning and for seeing that yeah the world is a lot bigger than than I actually realized and in some aspects it's also smaller as you get to form those connections with those people so international studies was the most logical way for me to immerse myself in that world and get to see the other side. Does that have a focus on development or is it simply a matter of understanding um, other cultures? Yeah, for me, I think the process of understanding new cultures is also understanding that development differs between places. And personally, uh, in my own life and from what I've seen uh, based on my own personal experiences, uh, I can see that development in other countries uh, really lacks in some areas. And also that kind of brings to light the role that Australia has to play in bringing that development and in partnershiping with places that might you know benefit from from our assistance um, so I think development 
has become a huge interest for me. That's personally something I'd like to get into. Uh, but yeah, it's it's connected in a lot of different ways to many different aspects, and it's not just one problem that you can solve. Uh, everything yeah is interconnected. You uh, lived and, and worked in Japan for a while. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. So, oh, probably four years ago now, I, I moved to Japan. I was in the South Island, uh, and I did some volunteer work in in rural communities in Japan, and that was just the best experience. I loved every part about that. What was the key learning, do you think, out of that in terms of this context of betterment, of improvement? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think for me, being able to see that at the core, at the core of every human, uh, we all kind of desire the same things. I think it, it taught me that we're not so different in reality. And so the, the process of getting to betterment um, is just seeing where we connect, what our similarities are, as opposed to pinpointing the areas where we differ and it's okay to acknowledge that there are differences but if we're able to see um, the similarities then yeah I think we're able to move towards betterment in any way. You were due to go back were you not? I was yeah twice so (laughs) I was fortunate enough uh, to receive a scholarship actually to study overseas and uh, because I fell in love with everything about Japan I I chose to go back there uh, to do my studies in Kyoto so I was planning on doing language uh, and culture studies just to deepen my understanding of that. Uh, And then just recently as well, I was offered an opportunity to uh, assist at the Tokyo Olympics and do some translation and host work over there. Um, However, uh, with the current situation, the COVID-19 pandemic has put a bit of a roadblock on getting over there. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to make it. Do you have any sense of resentment about lost opportunities that you could have been doing? Like the final year of your studies, which should be full on university, but isn't. And going to Japan, which now you can't. Is it resentment or is it just, well, que sera, sera? Yeah, I, in the, initially, yes, I can't deny that. I was really upset by what had happened. Um, but I think it would be unfair of me to um, pretend that, you know, it was only limited to my own personal experiences and everybody's been impacted by COVID. And so it's important for me to recognise that in the face of a challenge, the best thing you can do is not focus on all of the bad and negative things you weren't actually able to do, but to instead pursue avenues that will progress you in a different pathway. And I am a believer that, um, you know, it doesn't matter where where you go in life, it's what you make of it. Uh, so yeah, it was frustrating and COVID is frustrating for everyone, but I think it's our perspective that matters. Uh, and I look forward to the day when I can go back to Japan. I know that it will happen one day, but I'm making the most of it at home now. With your peers, when you uh, when you meet on campus and you talk about things like COVID, when you can't meet on campus at the moment, but when you did, how would they feel? You've, you've given a response which is fundamentally positive and optimistic to say, well, you know, this, this will end and we'll just carry on and blah. How do they feel? Do they feel that a slice of their life has been stolen that they can't recapture? Yeah, I, I think they do. I think they do. And I think considering the way that Australia is managing COVID-19 as well, that's a really common debate that I have amongst my friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at other countries in the world, uh, Europe, as an example, they have COVID as well. Uh, They've been vaccinated and they're not as restrictive, I think, in some of the ways that Australia is. So I think that there's a lot of resentment around the way Australia has been managing their borders. Um, And also, uh, you know, as young Australians, what can we do 
to kind of change the future of of the situation you know uh, we can kind of roll with the punches which is what we've been doing as a nation uh, but then when looking at other countries it makes you question like well how come we are a little bit more strict in these areas and as young Australians do we have a voice do we have an opportunity to change um, yeah what's happening so yeah that's that's quite a concern do you have an answer to the question do we have a voice do you have a voice uh, that's a good question I I think I think we do have a voice. I think the challenge is in helping people who are kind of in power at the moment recognise that we have that voice. And so through different programs perhaps uh, that allow us to express how we feel and express the things that we desire for our nation, those might be some of the ways to do that. But I'm still learning um, where I can have my voice heard and... I'm not sure that I have the answer yet. But yeah. <laughs> well, at least you'll try. That's marvellous. That's marvellous. <laughs> Let's um, put a different light, perhaps, on, on COVID-19 and see it as a, as a precursor, rehearsal for what may well come next in terms of climate change, uh, which many scientists um, would argue is going to be much more, more challenging, uh, both in the sense that it's more than just a simple little virus. It's all sorts of stuff interacting and complexity and so on. And it's not short term. I mean, the issue with the virus, as we've stressed a number of times in this miniseries, is that in the end, it is possible to see a silver bullet like a vaccine, um, limited though that might be. But at least there is that possibility. With climate change, there is no silver bullet, is there? No, I don't think so. And I think that COVID-19, if anything, has kind of shed a light on the areas where uh, we are struggling, particularly particularly relating to climate change. I think climate change in itself is already a threat multiplier. So you look at all the things that are happening uh, in the development sphere as well and, and you look at the progress that these developing nations have made towards overcoming you know, the impacts of climate change, overcoming those challenges, and, uh, and they were on a good pathway. And last year I read a statistic that something like 124 million people we're kind of thrown back into that poverty loop again uh, because of COVID and climate change has not been, I suppose, a helpful factor in that as well. So because we're changing our focus and our resources uh, into this COVID now, uh, what was once going into the climate change has yeah, been taken away. So they do connect and that's a problem. So is this a conversation with you and your peers as well? Yeah, this is something that I, I do discuss with my friends and I think climate change and sustainability are, is at the forefront of young people's agenda. That's something that a lot of people, if you look at the direction people are taking in their studies as well, STEM-related career pathways, uh, particularly focused on sustainability, uh, is a priority for young people. And yeah, it really brings into question what we're, what we can do, what we're capable of and what Australia is doing in comparison to the rest of the world. And so um, if you look at how they've tackled the COVID crisis, how, how come we're not tackling climate change with the same amount of urgency? Why is the urgency differ there? Um, so yeah, that's something. Do you have an answer discuss. to that question? I think this is a very uh, limited perspective, but I think that because we can see COVID having an immediate effect, it's really easy to say, okay, this is a crisis. We need to act. What can we do to change? And then if you think of climate change, where it's a little bit more ambiguous, it's harder 
rather than seeing immediate impacts, we're seeing patterns and effects. Uh, it's spread out, you know, over time. Yeah, it's easier for people to say, okay, well, I can see something really bad happening right now and that's going to impact my work and my study and every other aspect of my life, which is done. So, yeah, it's a priority. But climate change, it's like, oh, well, there's bushfires happening. That could be something that happened 100 years ago. Who knows? That's normal. And so I think people justify that in their minds and mm. it's not, not mm, a priority. One of the issues that uh, I have been pursuing personally and introduced in the, in the start of, of this miniseries was my belief that our schooling and our university education is deplorable in preparing us for complexity. And um, what I hear you say, and I would thoroughly agree, is that climate change is infinitely more complex. We don't know which trajectory it's going to go on. And there are, as you say, little spot fire indicators that things aren't right. If you just look at of, of our fire situation last year, um, which was far more intense than the sort of fires we've had in the past. And if you look at what's going on in flooding in Europe as we speak, and of the absurd temperatures that are going on in, in Central North America. So it seems to me that, that somehow or another our education fails to allow us to learn how to deal with uncertainty, with ambiguity, and with, with this idea of complexity. Is there anything in your studies, do you think, that really did encourage you to learn that way? Mm. So just to clarify, helping me understand how to manage complexity mm-hmm. in my own future future pathway is that what you're asking yeah I mean that if you take a, a standard science degree and I'm, I'm, and I'm recognizing yours isn't a standard science degree but all the time there we're seeking to understand phenomena as they occur and providing evidence to suggest our explanation of why things are occurring but when things are complex we actually can't explain why they're occurring we are amazed that when they do I mean the pandemic has unfolded exactly as we would expect it Uh, including the poor political response in most countries of the world. None of them's got it right, even though we knew it was going to happen. And in in climate change, we know it's going to happen. And yet the issue is our fundamental understanding of the way complexity expresses itself rather than an epidemic or a pandemic which expresses itself in death uh, of people. Uh, The rest of the world carries on, as it were. The rest of nature carries on, whereas in climate change it doesn't. It's much, much more complex than that. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think, and sometimes I wonder, uh, you know, is is the reason why we have this understanding of climate change in such a complex way uh, because of the information that we've we've been fed as well, and so maybe that's kind of been skewed a little bit by what we hear on the media, by what other people choose to share, by confirmation bias. There's a lot of things that I think add on to that complexity. And I personally, in my degree, the thing that I've learned to overcome and manage it is just to do my own research Mm -hmm. and to actually learn different perspectives because you can't focus on one track and think that that's that's the the issue and the, the... I suppose solution there's another side to things as well and so it's, it's taught me to look outside of the box but um, I, another thing I also wonder as well about climate change is and this might be um, something yeah, that you can counter on uh, but is it because we're recording and taking more notes and paying more attention and uh, have more resources to actually refer to that this is such a complex problem 
100 years ago, they didn't have those same resources or ways to share that information. We couldn't record it in the same way. So in a way, is it worse now because we have this influx of, of knowledge? Um, yeah, yeah I, I would argue um, as an erstwhile scientist that, that it's certainly true that our ways of measuring things are more sophisticated now. But climate change um, has been an issue. I can remember back in the 1960s mm. um, when we were discussing greenhouse gases. And at that stage, we weren't quite sure whether the emissions of carbon dioxide would actually heat the world up or cool it down. But the debate was quite vibrant in those days. And then some work, um, recent work has, has been done in the development of what is being referred to as the Holocene, the Anthropocene, I'm sorry, as a section of the Holocene, uh, where people are having such an impact, human beings are having such an impact on the natural world and the social world, uh, that it's almost now a new geological era because of things like plastics and nuclear waste and, and so on. And uh, some work goes back to the 1950s and says, we've really been on a major acceleration in degradation and devaluation since the 1950s. And, uh, I mean, I was alive and well in the 1950s, and I can attest to that. So that the topic has always been there. Yes, it is true that measurements are now more accurate, and maybe we're measuring things now that we weren't measuring before. Uh, but the evidence has been there. In fact, you can go back to the 19th century when people were talking about agriculture alone having an impact and forestry having an impact uh, on, on the natural world. But your point is well made. I'd like to finish, uh, and I'm going to come back to you at some, uh, some future date because I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, just very, very briefly to describe this really interesting experience you've just had working essentially with the U.S. government, working on uh, a project with fellow students and graduates and young people about the alliance with the United States. Yeah, so honestly, the thing that stood out the most to me about that whole experience was how passionate young people are about making a difference. And that instilled in me that uh, that confidence and positivity that we spoke about earlier. You asked me, are you positive about the future of you know, the world and what's happening? And I would say yes, because of, of forums like that, because I was able to attend a US embassy student leadership program, I was able to see that there are leaders and people who are willing to make a change, who are knowledgeable and who go out of their way to seek these opportunities. And that for me was the most heartwarming, but also um, inspiring thing to be a part of. And I'm really grateful. Uh, How did the project that. actually work? So essentially what we did was um, manage to work in groups on communique, different communique projects. So there was a different theme each week that we had to focus on. Um, and that was related to the US-Australia alliance as well. And so I was super fortunate to be placed with uh, different Australians from, from across Western Australia, Northern Territory, all different areas, and were able to debate and come up with uh, answers, I suppose, to, to these real life questions. Uh, and so those things focused on you know, the current geopolitical status, on climate change, security in the region. I were able to bring in a young person's perspective and something that the US-Australia Alliance felt was really important uh, to hear in order to shape their future policies. Uh, so 
yeah, it was a great program. Really grateful for it. And I learned a lot as well from uh, the different lecturers that we had come along. Uh, There was a three-day capstone program at the end where we were able to visit the embassy, we were able to hear from professionals in the field and really teach and solidify the knowledge that uh, we're interested to hear uh, and, yeah, expand our perspectives. So it was great. And uh, to end this this episode on uh, on a really really positive note then i have to say that um, creole was the outstanding student in that program uh, and uh, was awarded the ultimate prize in terms of uh, her final submission which was really absolutely brilliant in terms of insights to all the things that she's been talking about now so thank you all very much for listening and thank you to you very much creole we will come back to you thank you so much for having me it's been awesome